Good morning, church family. Thank you, Ben, for always uh, leading us so well in um, the song and worship. That's why I suck at that. We are continuing our um, journey, our trek, if you will, our uh, series through the book of Acts. And so we've been learning of how the early church uh, exploded and how God has been working through them and applying those lessons to our life. And so we're going to continue doing that as we're going to finish up Acts chapter 6. And so we'll be in the last part of Acts chapter 6 as we see uh, this next movement in this early church. And so hopefully this has been a good series for all of us as we have dug in and seen, and seen how the church has was started and how God has been moving there and understand how God is still moving today through his church. And so before we dive into that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time. When we can gather together as your people and open up your word, when we can learn about you, who you are, how you've moved through history, how you started your church, how you have brought people to know the truth of Jesus Christ, how your spirit has been powerfully and moved through um, this community and, and communities and changed hearts. So Lord, I pray for this time as we open up your word that you bring it to life in our hearts and our minds, that we can see what we need to see, that we can be taught what we need to know, that we can learn who you are and how we need to respond to you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Deceptions cloud the truth. I think we've all experienced that. When lies start flying, the truth can get lost. Which is maybe why the line from the poem, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we sit to deceive or practice to deceive, is so popular. Maybe it's not popular to you, but it always comes to my mind. It's, it seems everywhere, and it, it seems applicable um, to all of life, that deceptions just tangle people up. They tangle people up to the point where the truth is so easily lost and we're confused. This really came home to me when I was doing youth, youth ministry up in Colorado, working with Young Life and, and investing in uh, actually junior high students. And I had this kid that I had taken to several camps. I had invested in. We shared deeply with one another stories, and we had fun together. And then all of a sudden, I realized everything he had told me, except for his name, was a lie. He had created this different life. I think actually was the first person that got catfished. He created this whole, this whole life of experiences and where he was born and family members that didn't exist. And it really threw me through a loop. It made me go, wow, I don't even know what's real anymore. And deception does that. That when people start lying, when people seek to deceive one another, the truth gets clouded. And man, during our time, how real is that? When you turn on the computer and you see everything under the sun. You see anyone can take a picture of someone and plaster a quote next to them, and you're left thinking Abraham Lincoln was talking about the internet. The truth can get clouded, and we're wondering what's happening, and we long for something just to cut through it all. We long for something that maybe can shine brighter than all these deceptions that we keep on hearing, and we have something like that. For we have something that is 
brighter and pure enough that can withstand all the deceptions people try to cover it up with or deceive you about it. And that is the gospel. The truth of who Jesus is. This shines brighter than any of the deceptions or lies people try to bring against it to try to deceive you about it or try to cover it up or fight against it. The gospel outshines them all. Because the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the son of God who came to live for us, to die for us, who rose for us, it brings people from darkness to light. It brings people out of delusion of, that the devil has cast upon this world into the marvelous light of God's kingdom and God's truth. And so we have something like that that shines brighter than all of these deceptions the world might throw at it. And that's what we see, I believe we see in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. We see people responding to the gospel preached, and they respond through deception and lies. And they want to cover it up. They want to cloud the issue, but yet it doesn't work. For the gospel will outshine it all. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 6. And if you don't, don't worry, it'll be on the screen as we read these uh, verses, starting in verse 8. If you remember, this is where we were. We, uh, we saw the church growing so much so that they actually had to appoint seven different people to help administer kind of the daily uh, distribution, the taking care of the poor and the widows of the church. And so they had selected these seven guys, one being Stephen, and now this is talking about Stephen, uh, this kind of proto-deacon of the church. And it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those of uh, Sicily and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will, will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. Well, what do we see from this passage? I think we see the truth that the gospel outshines all deceptions. For what we see here is that the God is working through his early church. The gospel was being preached. People were being ministered to. One, powerful signs and wonders were going because God's working through his people. And yet... People responded to this evidence of God working through lies, through making up stories, to try to discredit Stephen in the early church, but yet they could not do it before the gospel outshines all deceptions. When we look at this passage in the whole of chapter 7 that we're going to be in next week, we see it's centering around this person, Stephen. And so we have to know who Stephen is. Well, Stephen, as we said, we encountered at the beginning of chapter 6, and he is one of those seven people full of good repute, who had wisdom and were full of the spirit that the church chose and said, these seven will now administer 
uh, minister to the church by making sure the widows get what they need and people who are in need get what they what they they have. And as we'll see at the end of chapter seven, Stephen, the servant of the church, becomes the first martyr, first Christian martyr of the church as well. But what's unique about Stephen is that so much is focused on his character. Out of the seven, he actually is the only one that has like this little blurb about who he is. And we see his character being stated again and again that, that Luke, who's writing Acts, is driving home. Stephen was an upright, outstanding person, full of the Spirit, who God was empowering for ministry. So let's think about Stephen's character that we know from, from Acts. First of all, we know that he was in line with those requirements of the seven chosen to stir, serve, which was means that he had, good, he had good reputation. He was full of the Spirit, and he was full of wisdom, which means that people looked at him, they knew who he was, and that he was a, a believer, and that the Spirit was working through him, and he was wise on how to take care of his church. But even in uh, the, last, the passage we read last week, we see how it even went further, and it talks about how he was full of faith. And emphasize again, he was full of the Holy Spirit. That is, this Stephen was a believer. He, he firmly believed in who Jesus was and the Spirit was working through him. And then now we have this characterization of Stephen in this passage which says he was full of grace and power. So it's an interesting combination here. It's a striking combination when you think about it. For grace seems to denote like a, a Christ-like behavior or being gracious to people. That Stephen knew he was saved by grace. He knew he had done nothing to earn God's favor. And so when people responded to him or when he was interacting with people, he responded with that very same grace, which made him a perfect person to serve the early church as he looked at people and their problems and then their grief or in whatever was going on with life, and yet he could respond to them with grace because he was full of that grace that God had saved him with. But he also was full of power. And we see this because the, the God was working through him to do these signs and wonders. And so we have this combination that he was gentle and he loved people and he was gracious with them. But yet he also was being used by God in these great and mighty ways. And when you make this picture of being full of grace and power, he sounds a whole lot like Jesus, doesn't he? That he was actually reflecting Christ so well, people were putting these characteristics upon him and saying, look at this guy, he's following in Christ's footsteps. And what's so, one, what's so interesting, I think, about Stephen here is that for the first time, someone outside of the circle of the apostles is actually accredited for God working signs and wonders through. That Stephen is the first person outside of that circle of the apostles where now God is working, the Holy Spirit is working, and people are seeing these signs and wonders happening. A lot of people get bogged down in, in questions about that, like, well, was it just the apostles or the apostles in their immediate circle that, that had these signs and wonders? But I don't think that's the point of this passage, because I believe it's a unique time in Christian and church history. But the point is that God is using all of his servants for his ministry. That God is using all of his people to make sure the gospel is going to be preached and presented to everyone who needs to hear it. And he was using Stephen for that purpose. Because we see 
that obviously somehow Stephen was not just serving the, the early church and the, the widows and the orphans or the people they were taking care of, but he was also preaching the gospel. Because if he wasn't, if he wasn't preaching the gospel, there was no need for these people from the synagogue to stand up to refute him. So he was serving tables, witnessing, uh, loving people, but also expressing the truth of who Jesus Christ was, probably to everyone who could listen, so much so that this group of Jews in the synagogue rose up and said, we got to put a stop to this guy. And so they tried to refute him. And it seems like it might have been a public kind of confrontation, but I love how it says that, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. That these people tried to refute the gospel. They tried to prove that Jesus Christ was not the Messiah. They tried to prove that he was not the Son of God, and yet the spirit working through Stephen made it clear this is the truth. That this is the gospel that everyone needs to come and understand. They could not withstand what he was speaking. Yeah, it's so powerful. But when we look at Stephen, I think all of us should be encouraged and challenged at the same time. For when we look at Stephen, we should be encouraged because here is an example of another disciple. Not one, not one of the apostles. You know, maybe tier B. He was sitting on the bench for a while. But now he's being put into the game. He's another disciple. He's a servant of, <clears throat> of, of the church. He's not one of the superstars. He's waiting tables. For when Peter said, we cannot stop uh, preaching the word and praying to wait tables, here comes Stephen and he says, I'll wait the tables. And he still preached the word. And yet God used him for his glory, for God's glory, to make known the gospel. So it's an encouragement because so often Christians nowadays get into their heads and say, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a Christian minister. I'm just in whatever you want to put there. And they think, well, how can God use me? Or how could I even think to help teach someone the ways of the Lord or, or, or share my faith with someone? And all the time when we look at this, it shows us the truth that God will use all of his people. He'll use the servants and the big names He'll use everyone so that he gets the glory and that the gospel is spread. This actually goes against our, our common conception, our modern conception of like the professionalization of ministry, saying we hire someone to do that. Some churches have this attitude where they say, well, we hire someone to share the gospel to people. We hire someone to minister to people. And I say that even realize that, like, hey, yeah, I, this is my job. But at the same time, the job of the pastor, of pastors and elders and the leaders is to equip and train the whole church for the ministry of God. And so that people like Stephen who have servant's heart who have fallen God can serve for the glory of God but also can preach the truth for the glory of God so people can understand and know who Jesus is and respond to it. And so this should encourage us because it shows us God can use all of us as we're in our midst of whatever God's called us to do in normal life, to share his gospel for his glory. But there's also a challenge related to that. Because the challenge is that we need to be ready to be used like Stephen. 
which reminds me of 1 Peter 3.15, which says, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for hope that is in you. Yet do it all with gentleness and respect. That there's a challenge here that if we're going to be used by God, we have to prepare ourselves to be used by God. We have to be ready to give an answer, give a defense for why people look at us and say, well, you seem to have hope in this hopeless world. Well, you seem to understand something that I'm lacking. Why? We need to be ready to say, this is why, because I know who Christ is. I know there is hope when everything seems like there's maybe not hope. We need to be training ourselves and preparing ourselves and equipping ourselves and being equipped by the church to do that. All too often, we can drift through life, and sometimes, myself included, it seems like we can just dabble in Christianity. That's just something that we add to life, and it might spice it up a little bit. But the reality is that there's no part of our life, no part of our mind, no part of who we are that Christ does not demand at all. Now we use everything we are, whether we're at work in ministry or at home, for the glory of God and that we are ready to give a defense for what we believe. That we train ourselves even just knowing why we believe what we believe and being able to share that with someone. And when we do that, God moves through our ministry, our sharing with people, and that we can truly be that light shining the hill that Jesus talks about because the gospel outshines all deception. Because the deceptions, they are many. They are everywhere. Because just check out what happens to Stephen. He comes face to face with this dark world that wants to lie about everything it seems. Because that's what happened. He, he's preaching the gospel. People stand up and try to refute him, and they cannot refute him. They get trounced. He wins the debate, hands down. They cannot prove what he's saying is wrong. In fact, they're probably listening and says, man, he's got a lot of good points, but we don't want to believe it. And so what do they do? They lie about him. They grab some people and say, hey, let's instigate a whisper and smear campaign against Stephen and twist what he's saying and make it seem like he is blaspheming Moses and the law. Let's make it seem like he has it out against, he has it against his, fe- his fellow Jews, that he wants to just up, uproot our whole way of being. And so they, they bring this first attack against him. They personally smear his reputation among the community. They, they actually get people to whisper against him. And this stirs the people up. It, sa- it says how these lies were growing, they were spreading, and all the, 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 the scribes and the elders were hearing these things so much that the lies stir people up almost into a mob, and they say, let's get him. And this mob goes and grabs Stephen and pulls him in front of the council. And so then they have to double down on their deceit. And they say, well, now we're in front of the council. Now we're going to go to court. So let's get some false witnesses. Let's actually get some people who are going to continue the smear campaign before the council. And let's these false witnesses, and they, they trump up these charges that now he's speaking against the temple. And he's speaking against the law. He's speaking against everything that makes us Jewish. Because you have to realize these are serious accusations. 
that they're bringing against him what, what defined someone as a Jewish, as Jew. That Moses, the one they looked to as the prophet sent by God who gave them the law that defined themselves as God's people. That's what he was, they're charging him with, that they're speaking against these big things, the temple where they knew they could meet with God and it's how they worshiped. They were charging him with all these things and they even charged him that he's teaching about how Jesus said he would destroy this place and that he would uproot all these customs. What's amazing about that is we see that Stephen was teaching the exact same thing Jesus was teaching. Because this is the exact same charge that was brought against Jesus. Because Jesus stood up in the temple and said, using this as an analogy, saying, look at this place, in three days it's going to be, it's going to be destroyed, but in three days it's going to rise again. Talking about his body, how he, the true temple, was going to die and rise again in three days. That Jesus talked against the law, not saying he came to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And so they take that teaching that Stephen, no doubt, taught by Jesus, well, taught by the apostles in the early church, and now he was preaching this to people about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. That Jesus is the true temple. That Jesus is the law follower that we all need because we can't follow the law. That in Jesus, we know the truth. And this is what Stephen's teaching, and they take his words and they twist it. And they, they, they miss the point. They just bring these accusations against him. And what's so amazing when we, again, when we see this, we see this almost as a repeat of what happened to Jesus as a slander and smear campaign came against him, as a mob rose up to come and grab him as he stood in front of that same council and was accused of the same things, that Stephen was falling right in the footsteps of his risen Lord. And following the steps of Christ, of that cross-bearing, ridiculed, falsely accused, and slandered Christ is not optional for his disciples. But when you choose to be associated with Christ in his life, in his death, and his resurrection so all too often this world will also associate you with him and his false accusations and slandering. And through this all, Stephen stood firm. We need to understand that. We need to also be prepared for when we preach the gospel, deceptions could come back at us. It could even get personal, like it got with Stephen. For when you refuse someone, when you're declaring the truth, a lot of people actually don't even like the truth that much, and so if they can't actually attack what you're saying, they might end up attacking you. So we need to steal, steal ourselves and prepare ourselves for this, this, might, this possibility this happens. But first and foremost, we need to hold out the gospel and let it shine so that people can see the truth. And see who Christ is. That when we're attacked, we don't need to defend ourselves. Because it's not about us. But we hold out the truth of the gospel and say, look on who he is. You can make up anything you want about me. I don't care. But look to Christ. For it's in him that we are saved. It's in him that we know God. It's in him that our sins are forgiven. And so we hold out Christ knowing that it changes everything when someone knows who he is. 
when the gospel comes home, when the Spirit applies that to our hearts and saves us, it gives meaning and purpose and makes life sweet even when it seems to be called bitter because we know who our Savior is. The gospel outshines all deceptions. That's so important to remember that. For deceptions and lies are so easy to listen to. They worm into our minds and they're insidious and we start actually maybe wondering, are these real? When we look in the Bible, it's not long until just in chapter 3, we see lies and deceptions coming into the world and making everything like it is now. As the serpent slithered up to Eve, and the first thing he says was a twisting of God's truth. Did God say? We see that again and again, that deceptions all around us, and it can confuse us with from false teachers or even the enemy. False teachers who might whisper good things in our ears and tickle our ears and say, well, it's all on you, and if you do this or if you do that, maybe God will look upon you with love. And you see those tempting things we hear that might draw us away from the true gospel, we need to go back to the gospel that shines so brightly that shows, no, it's not about what you do. It's not about even who you are. It's not about being good enough because you can't be good enough. It's not about doing a certain amount of works because you will always fail. It's not about somehow getting your life right and then pursuing God. He'll accept you. No, the gospel declares brightly for all of us to hear is because God set his love upon you and that changes everything. That in spite of yourself, he sent Christ. While you are still sinners, spitting in his face, he sent his son to live for you, to die for you. He sent his spirit to change your heart and woo you back to him. That that, it whispers to us, is not about me. It's not about how well I've lived this life. It's not about me and the standard. The gospel brightly declares it's about Christ. Look to him. And again, maybe we listen to some whispers of the enemy as, it, as the enemy slithers up and whispers, you're not good enough. If people knew what you did, if people knew what was in your mind, if people knew your past, would they even want you in church sitting next to them? If people just knew you're not good enough. God can't use you. You're not special. You're not needed. If, we're, if, we, if we let it, the enemy will whisper these lies to us. And we, if, we, if we're honest, I think all of us at times have heard these lies. And we're tempted to listen and give in or be overwhelmed by doubt and fear or anxiety because of these lies. But to that, again, we need to look at the gospel because the gospel cloud, loudly and brightly declares, No! That is false. It's not, again, about you, that you are loved, that our God rejoices over you. If you stand in Christ, he rejoices over you with singing, that he looks upon you and loves you, that he has set his heart upon you, and now you're lovely, not because you're lovely, because he says you will be lovely and you will be mine. 
that you are now his treasured possession and that there is nothing you can do, nothing you can do that's horrible enough to wiggle out of his hands. There's nothing you can do that can somehow turn his love away from you. There's nothing you can do that makes you unlovable to our loving God. And so again, when we are threatened by those whispers, we look to our Savior, our God, We look to our Christ. We look to the truth of that glorious gospel because the gospel outshines all deceptions. I love this passage, not just because you see Stephen standing strong and outshining these deceptions as he's preached the gospel, but there's such a heavy sense of irony in this passage. For these are people who are saying, this Stephen... How dare he speak against our God? How dare he speak against Moses? And yet he was doing signs and miracles that only God could be doing through him. But that's not good enough. It shows how they were so darkened in their understanding that they cannot even see the truth of who he is and what he preaches. And I think we see this huge sense of irony where now he's falsely accused again in the council. And what does it say at the very last Um, verse in in chapter 6, it says they looked at him and his face looked like that of a face of an angel. Now it's interesting, when we read that, I think we read it with our modern modern sense. And so we use that language, the face looks like an angel, to denote innocence or maybe purity. When we look at a sleeping baby, ah, he looks like a little angel, right? That's how we kind of read this angelic kind of thing. But to them... What did they know of angels? They were creatures of light. They were holy warriors of God. These angels showed up as these bright beings and people fell on their face thinking they actually were in the presence of God. And so when it says his face was like that of the face of an angel, I really believe there was a visible manifestation of God's glory happening and Stephen's face was shining like an angel would shine. And so notice the irony. They're standing and accusing Stephen. He's seeking to do away with the law. He's seeking to do away with this temple. He's speaking blasphemous words against Moses. All the while, his face is shining like Moses' face shined after he talked with God. If you remember that count in Exodus, Moses actually comes face to face with God, actually really more like face to backside with God, and yet it changed him. And so when he came down off that mountain, his face was shining so brightly just with the reflected glory of God that people were like, we can't stand it, put a veil on. And so now here is Stephen, and they're accusing him of going against Moses and God all the while showing that he's right in line with what God gave to Moses and what God has continually given to his church as his face shined with the reflected glory of Christ. And yet they still, still do not receive it. But we see this, and that's where I get to the fact that the gospel outshines these deceptions. For we see in Stephen this physical manifestation as God is working in him, and we know the gospel outshines all deceptions. They can accuse him of whatever they want. They can bring all these lies against him. But he stood true on the gospel, and God was making it known. 
this with my good and faithful servant. So what do we do when we see this? It's a unique time in the Christian church and then within history, and I don't think we're going to be standing before any councils soon, and I don't think when we do, we should expect to have the same experience as Stephen. So what do we do with this passage? Well, first I would say, let's see God in this passage. That God is at work in his church, that God uses his people to speak the truth, that God will use everyone. He'll use the waiters, and he'll use the speakers, and he'll use the pastors, and he'll use the servants. He'll use all of his people to make sure his truth and his gospel is proclaimed. And so we see God at work in this passage, that God is moving through the church, and that God is going to make sure that he is going to get his name and gospel out there. And he's going to do it in such a way that he gets all the glory. We see that again and again through the Bible. Why does God pick David, the youngest and smallest son? Well, very clearly he says he looks at, not at what man looks at, but he looks at the heart, but also he does it so that he gets the glory. The only way this happens, the only way the small kid defeats the giant, the only way a small nation becomes huge and becomes so prosperous is because God made it happen. Again and again through history, we see this happening. And so is it in mistake now that he takes Stephen, the servant, to now become the first Christian martyr and spring out this, the church to, to do its work because he chooses the least to confound the proud and powerful of this world? showing that he is at work because it's all about him and his grace that he gives us. So see God and how he moves through the church and how he's pushing his ministry and gospel forward. But we also see Stephen and learn from him how he stood firm. You see his, his boldness, but also his preparedness that he could only speak and preach what he did probably because he sat at the feet of the apostles and learned from them and grew under their tutelage so that he was prepared and ready to declare the truths of who God was. And so we should be challenged and encouraged to do the same. That we should be students of the word of God, that we should be students of what he has done of the gospel so that we can be prepared to be used like God and share God's story to all who would hear. Finally, when darkness looms, when lies and deceptions happen, because they do, this tells us to look back to the gospel. That when we hear the lies of the enemy or when, when we're tempted to look away from who Christ is, we need to look back to the glorious gospel. The fact that God loved us while we're still sinners and sent his son to die for us. The fact that it's not us, but it's him. That we need to look back to the gospel and take heart and know that that is what defines us. Not what the world says, not what the lies of, of our enemies say, but what defines us is Christ and his love. And look to that when you're tempted to look away or when darkness looms, because the gospel outshines all deceptions. Join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for your word that we can read and we can, we can grow in understanding about who you are and how you've worked throughout history, how you worked in the early church. So Lord, we just ask that you continue to build us up, that we can read 
this passage and the passages of Acts and see you at work, but also see how you should be at work in our lives and how we need to prepare ourselves to be used by you. Lord, I just pray for, for this whole congregation, everyone who calls Rare Valley home, that we can be people after your heart, that we can pursue you, that we can see you through your word and grow through that. That we can look back to the glorious truths of the gospel no matter what else is happening and know you and love you. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a new song that we did last week. Um, if you guys would stand, we're going to go ahead and sing it again.